0: The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Shislev, in the twentieth year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king.
1: So we're beginning a new series here this morning in our church, series of messages that will take us really through the entire first quarter of this year up until Easter, which is in April of this year. And it's entitled Getting Your Second Wind, Revive, Getting a Second Wind. And that's really what the whole book of Nehemiah is going to be about for us as we follow 13 chapters over the next uh, 13 weeks and what was happening in Old Testament times in the nation Israel. If you've ever heard a series on Nehemiah before, and some of us have, but most of us haven't, you know that many times when people talk about Nehemiah, they highlight his leadership, the fact that Nehemiah was a great prophet and leader in the nation Israel. Or they talk about the fact of how he rebuilt the wall around Jerusalem, and so they talk about you know church building campaigns and facilities. But I don't think that stuff really touches the core of what this book is really about. No, what this book is really about is not building campaigns or leadership. It's about God's people being in deep trouble. We're going to see that today, that God's people who had been in exile at that time in the nation Israel and how they needed a second wind from God. They were beaten down. Their culture was going downhill. Their their spiritual lives were going downhill. And, And they needed to get revived again spiritually. And that's what this book is about. And I think it's a wonderful theme for you and I as we're in the center of our Compelled by Grace uh, renewal as a church to focus on, on what do you and I do when we feel distant from God? What do we do when we feel in exile? What do we do when we're just kind of tired of the church thing or, or even feel like giving up? How do we get a second wind with God? And that's exactly what Nehemiah Is going to help us with so I think it's gonna be a great great series for us as a church and cactus campus and venue are joining us now for our teaching so as we're all together now let's do this let's pray and then we're gonna dive right in we're gonna do a deep dive with Nehemiah chapter 1 today father I thank you that uh, you have blessed us as your people and even our church in, in so many ways God, and uh, we know them and we're grateful and we give, give you thanks on a regular basis. Uh, Lord, we also know there are times when um, we can feel like we, we need to be revived. We need a second wind. We we feel beaten down. We feel distant from you. We feel frustrated even, Lord, with church and all the things that we have to deal with here and in our lives. And so, Lord, we thank you as well that you are God who shows us what it is to get a second wind from you. And so God, as we focus on that over the next few weeks in our individual lives, as well as as a church, God, speak to our hearts and our minds. Give us hope, Lord, that uh, you are who you are and that you are a God of second and third and fourth and fifth winds. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So let me ask you a lead in question. It's not a hard question, but it'll be kind of a fun question for us to get into our topic this morning. Look up here on the screen. What do Lassie, the St. Bernard dogs, you know, the ones that have the booze under their chin, uh, EMT workers, policemen, firemen, emergency room staff and military personnel all have in common? It's easy. They're all first responders, right? They're all first responders. I mean, one of the reasons that we love Lassie is because when Timmy was in trouble, Lassie was there, first on the scene. If you have a downed skier let's say, like Switzerland or something like that, they send out that St. Bernard dog. I don't know why they put booze underneath him, but not a bad idea. And they send him out to the downed skier to help him. And obviously, you and I love People like policemen and and emergency room staff and firefighters and EMTs and military because they're the first there when things go south, when we're in trouble. And think about it. What we love about first responders more than anything else is that these are men and women and even animals who know what to do first and then they act upon it. And as a result of that, we call them first responders. I mean, if Lassie decided to go chase squirrels rather than running for help, then that would ruin the whole story of Lassie, wouldn't it? I mean, if St. Bernard's decided to take a nap before going out to rescue somebody, we wouldn't think as highly of this breed. If a firefighter decides to finish his or her meal before they go to rescue somebody in a fire, that would kind of put a damper on what we think of firemen. But they don't do that. No, these are men and women, and again, animals, that that are first on the scene because they know what to do first, and we love them for it. And without them, we'd be in bad trouble. So you and I, as we enter into this series right now, can own the fact that there are some in our culture who have their priorities right in times of trouble, and we love them for it. We call them first responders. Now, the reason that this is so important to recognize today is because as you and I begin our journey through the book of Nehemiah, which as we've already established will be a journey on how to get a second wind with God when we need it the most, it's no coincidence that the very first chapter we're going to look at is all about what you and I need to do first when hard times hit. And so we're going to get to that in just a minute, but based on the passage that was read for us earlier, let me help us all get our bearings straight when it comes to where we are in the Old Testament as we look at Nehemiah, and I'm going to give you four Nehemiah fast facts to help us all get on the same page as to the context of this book so that we can understand it rightly. So here's the first one, and that is that it's 445 B.C., during the time of Nehemiah, and Israel has been in exile for 140 years. So here's what you need to know about the book of Nehemiah it has been a long and difficult road for the nation Israel, for God's people. They have been taken over first by the Assyrians and then the brutal Babylonian captivity occurred in 587 BC in which over a million Jews were deported from the Holy Land to faraway places. They lost their homes and their temple and everything that they knew and loved. And then the Persians defeated the Babylonians in 539 BC and the Persians annexed everything the Babylonians owned including Israel at that time so by the time you get to nehemiah here in 445 bc check this out israel was now in their seventh generation of exile so so that means that their parents the grandparents the great-grandparents great-great-grandparents keep going had all been in exile for as long as they can remember 140 years, and what you also need to know is that the Persian Empire, which was the one in control of that time, was extremely vast and powerful, and nobody would defeat the Persians until Alexander the Great, you guys remember him, would come along in about 300 or so B.C., so look up here on the screen, and cactus and venue, look up on your screens. Let me help you understand the geography of the time of Nehemiah. This will be important for you to understand what the nation Israel was facing at that time. This is a map of the entire Middle East now, modern day. So in the bottom left there, you got Egypt. Uh, which we're all familiar with. On the upper left you got Greece and then as you move over to your right in the center there you have Iraq and Iran and then all the stands and then finally on your far upper right there you'll see we edge into China. But this would represent the Middle East. Now here is where Israel is, this red circle here. Israel is a very very small nation tucked in there by the Mediterranean Sea and that's Israel Now let me blow your mind, this is the outline of the Persian Empire in Nehemiah's day. So it was huge. I mean, the Persian Empire essentially encompassed the entire Middle East, and again, they would not be defeated until the Greeks came along with Alexander the Great. And so the Persian Empire annexed little Israel there, and they controlled everything, and they had even continued the deportation of many in Israel at that time. Now, here's the second fast fact that will get us on the, uh, started in Nehemiah, and that's that Nehemiah himself is in Susa, that one of the capitals of, of Persia, acting as a cupbearer to King Artaxerxes. It tells us this in verse 11. Now, Susa was the winter palace for the king. He had a summer place and a winter place. I don't know if people in Scottsdale can relate to that, but he had a a summer place and a winter place. And and, and he's in his winter place, which is the administrative hub for all of Persia. Again, real quick on the map here, you can see that blue circle in the center there in the south where it was warmer. That was his winter place. That's where Nehemiah is in this book, where modern-day Iran is. And he's the cup bearer for the king. Now, I don't know what you know about ancient history, but a cup bearer for the king was actually a very prestigious position. It really was. I I mean, the downside of being a cup bearer is that your main job was to choose the wine for the king, and then you had to taste it to make sure there was no poison in it. So they went through quite a few cup bearers during difficult times, and that was the bummer part of the job. But the cupbearer, the upside was is that he had unfettered access to the king and many times was a confidant to the king. So for Nehemiah to be chosen as the cupbearer to the king, being an exiled Jew was huge, kind of like when Daniel had a good relationship with King Nebuchadnezzar. And so it's a weird thing going on here, but a good thing. And obviously, Nehemiah's real heart is to get home to Israel and begin to help God's people rebuild things with God. And this brings us to the third fast fact that you need to know as we enter into this study, and that is that some of the exiles have already returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the city and temple. This is really important. As I mentioned earlier, about a million Jews have been exiled. But about 90 years earlier, under the first king of Persia, a guy by the name of Cyrus, who took over power in 539, in 538 B.C., again, 90 years before the time of Nehemiah, he allowed about 50,000 Jews to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild their temple. It's a really cool thing. And you're saying, why did he do that? Well, the Persians weren't quite as mean as the Babylonians. They were more multicultural. They were from Toronto and places like that. And so, no, because Toronto, that wasn't a disc. Toronto was very multicultural, if you've ever been there. So that's the Persians. They respected all kinds of cultures, and they were into that. And though they were still going to control everything, they wanted the Jews to find their culture, so they allowed some of them to go back and rebuild the temple. And so things were looking up, for the nation Israel but here's what you got to remember about 950,000 of them are still in exile and the Persians are still in control so it's hardly the glory days of King David or King Solomon and this brings us to the fourth and final fast fact and with this we're going to get into our main point today and that is that Nehemiah gets word that Jerusalem is still very vulnerable and still needs a lot of rebuilding and this is the heart of the story that though the, the, the nation Israel, things were starting to look up, there was still a tremendous amount of work to be done. So let me reread the first three verses of Nehemiah, and then we're going to take off here. It says, The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the twentieth year, as I was in Susa, the capital, we now know where that is, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. Now, here it is. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province, Jerusalem, who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and the gates are destroyed by fire. Focus on that phrase, great trouble and shame. I put it for you there in yellow. That's key. It's hinged for all of chapter 1. That great that word trouble there, translated great trouble, is the Hebrew word ra'ah that occurs over 300 times in the Old Testament. And it literally means evil or disaster. It's a very, very strong word. That word there translated shame could be translated disgrace. So though 50,000 Jews had returned and had rebuilt the temple... The walls were still all torn down. People were still displaced from their homes. Not a lot of Jews had come back. And Jerusalem was still very vulnerable and under Persian control. And so trouble and shame were still the name of the game for most of the Israelites. And yet here's what I need you to latch on to even more. And that is, think about it, after seven generations of exile in which the vast majority of them had never experienced God in his temple or a synagogue. They'd never read the law because the law had been destroyed and separated from the people for generations. We know that most of the Jews at that time were ignorant of their history, ignorant of the law, ignorant of even God himself. And so after being in exile for 140 years and seeing all that they knew and loved taken away from them, don't miss this, the broken down walls are actually symbolic of their broken down spirituality. So they're not just distant from God or from Jerusalem geographically, they're distant from God himself. That's what we need to see as we begin this book. And though some of you say, well, I can't relate to that because, you know, if I'm distant geographically from a certain place, I don't necessarily feel distant from God, maybe you can relate to it this way. American spirituality, spirituality in America, started to actually go downhill, we know, about 100 years ago. It's for another sermon, but during what we call the great modernist fundamentalist debate of the 1920s, American culture began to change on a spiritual level. We went from being a highly religious, highly spiritual culture in which everybody and their brother was either a Presbyterian or a Methodist or an Episcopalian or what have you, to now the culture that we have today that seems to be run more by MTV and Hollywood than anything else, and many of us don't like that. So American culture has, on a spiritual level, definitely changed, if not gone downhill, and here's what you and I experience on a week-in and week-out basis. Tell me if this isn't true. If you have friends and co-workers and neighbors and friends that um, don't know the Lord, they don't walk with God, they're not even all that interested in spiritual things, my guess is that if you've asked them if they've ever done a history of their ancestors, and if they have, were there some of their ancestors that were spiritual or religious, they would say yes. They would. I mean, most people that do a search of ancestry in America are going to find that their great-grandparents, or maybe even their grandparents, were really good Presbyterians or were really good Methodists, and, and they were praying people, and they ran a farm, or they did something here, and they, and, they, and they were pretty religious people. It's just that 100 years later now, because of where American culture has gone and a lot of things, we have a lot more irreligious people, a lot more people who are not interested in church or spirituality. So don't tell me that we can't relate to Israel in exile. Don't tell me that we can't relate to a culture that has changed before our very eyes, that has changed around us, in which we have ancestors that might have known the Lord, but we ourselves now are surrounded by people, and they look at us and go, you go to church? Well, That's kind of strange. You're religious? Well, what's that about? It's no longer common as much in our culture. We're in exile. And in many ways, too, as we've already established, even as Christians, as followers of Jesus, can you own the fact that you go through personal seasons of exile? I can, and I'm your pastor. There are entire seasons where I feel distant from God. I feel like I'm living in Susa, and God's over in Jerusalem. And though I'm not geographically distant from him, I'm emotionally and spiritually distant from him, so I relate to the nation Israel. Now, don't miss this. The real issue at hand then for Nehemiah was his concern for his people that they get a second wind when it comes to their walk with the Lord, that they rekindle hope that they can be close to him once again. In short, they need to be revived. And with that backdrop and these fast facts, it's very interesting. Now, let's look at, for the rest of our time, at Nehemiah's first response. Look at what happens next. In the very next verse, look at verse 4. Nehemiah is now speaking in the first person, and he says this. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Talk about a first response. That's first response language. Do we all understand that? As soon as I heard these words, I prayed. That's what Nehemiah did. And though some of you are going, well, duh. I mean, he's a prophet in the Old Testament. Of course he prayed. You know, think of all the things that you and I do or might have done in Nehemiah's stead or that Nehemiah could have done instead of praying. I mean, if he was a really good Christian American, what he would have said is, as soon as I heard about Jerusalem, I hijacked a chariot and I went to Jerusalem because we're going to fix this thing. That's what most Americans are really good at. As soon as I heard, I'm going there. But D.M.I. didn't do that. Or, or say he was kind of a team builder. As soon as I heard, I got all my peeps together, and we started to come up with a plan, and we're going to fix this thing, and, and there's no I in team, and we're going to solve this together. But but he didn't do that either. Or, or if he, again, was on Amazon.com, he might type in, you know, self-help. You know, what can I do to fix this problem? And I'm going to read, and I'm going to study, and I'm going to go get a bunch of scrolls, and I'm going to figure this thing out. But he didn't do any of that. No, it says that before the God of heaven, isn't that a beautiful phrase? Before the God of heaven, I prayed. And I continued to pray. That's what you and I need to see. That this rugged leader who was extremely competent, this confidant to the king, this guy who will literally, as we'll see in the coming weeks, rebuild the walls around Jerusalem and save the day, the first response he had was prayer. And the obvious implication for you and I today, I hope it's not lost on you and Cactus and Venue, you as well, and those of you who are watching online, is that our first response to trouble must be prayer. That's the obvious point. It must be prayer. Now, if you're tracking me right now, I think the question becomes, and even I ask this question as a pastor, why is God so concerned that our first response is prayer? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, God's a God of action. God's a doer. God cares about the problems that we have. So why is he most concerned? Because this is repeated all throughout Scripture. Why is he most concerned that we pray? In fact, let me blow you away with this stat. Nehemiah, when he prays here in chapter 1, this will actually set in motion the first of 12 instances in the book of Nehemiah where he prays first before anything else. Isn't that interesting? So this isn't a one-off. It's not an outlier. This is a pattern of Nehemiah. Why is God most concerned that we pray before anything else? And our time remaining, let me share with you two thoughts that come right from this text. Here's the first one, and that is that prayer connects us with God and focuses us on his resources. Or put more simply, God knows we need him, <laughs> whether we think it or not, and, and prayer is how we connect with him. Look at verses 6, 9, and 11 again. And let's, let, let's, let's park in front of these a bit more closely. And, and you're going to start to see a few things that prayer does That at least it did for Nehemiah and it can for you and I. Let me me read it for you again. Uh, Nehemiah is talking to God now in verse 6 and he says, Let your, God, ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you, even as I and my father's house have sinned. And then we'll go down to verse 9. Nehemiah is now quoting Deuteronomy chapter 30, a promise that God had given to Israel that you're going to want to dial into. And he says, but if you return to me, God, and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen, which is Jerusalem, to make my name dwell there. And then skip down to verse 11. Again, once again, Nehemiah is now talking directly to God, and he says, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name, and give success to your servant today, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, that man being the king, which we'll get to next week. So, so though you read verses 6, 9, and 11, and you might be tempted to think, well, okay, it's a prayer. I mean, there's lots of prayers in the Bible. Here's what I want you to notice is happening in in this prayer here. And this will make all the difference to you and me today as to why prayer needs to be a first response. And that is that God inclines, God moves, and God answers all in response to prayer. Did you know that? That when you and I pray, and we're going to talk about how to pray in just a minute here, but when we pray in the way that God wants us to pray, He inclines, He moves, and may I boldly say, He answers. And so in verse 6, Nehemiah, as we just read, begins his prayer by saying that as he prays, he trusts that God's ear will be attentive and that his eyes will be open to hear Nehemiah's prayer. Now, this is actually fascinating language that Nehemiah uses here. Are you picking up on it? It's what theologians call anthropomorphic language. Simply put, it's language that attributes human characteristics to something or someone that is not human for the sake of making a point. So we do it all the time with our kids with cartoons. You ever notice that? Like, do I need to let you know that Bugs Bunny doesn't really talk in real life? There's no Bugs Bunny in real life, but animals don't talk. Dr. Doolittle is is, is fantasy. But we like to have fun with that because we like to to, to take anthropomorphic ideas and put human characteristics on non-human things, and that's kind of fun. Biblical writers did that all the time with God. God doesn't literally have an ear. He doesn't literally have eyes because God is spirit. But what Nehemiah is trying to say is that he still hears, he still sees. Why? Because he inclines himself to us. He's attentive when we pray. And that's the first thing you need to know, is that the reason God wants you to come to him first is because he's going to listen to you. He loves you. His grace is upon you. And he wants to help you. And so he says, when you pray, he is listening. Now, hang on to that, and notice further that God moves when we pray. Because verse 9 tells us this. While Nehemiah is quoting loosely Deuteronomy 30, the first four verses, he says that in response to God's promise... And in response to prayer, that God will gather his people, he will bring them to the place that he has chosen, which is referring to Jerusalem. And so Nehemiah had full confidence that as he prayed, because it was God's will, because it was a promise contained in his word, that God was going to fulfill this promise and he was going to move. That's relevant for you and I today. That as we claim God's promises clearly outlined in his word and pray those things to God, he says, I'm going to move in your midst. So God inclines himself to us when we pray. He moves in response to our prayers. And then probably most powerfully and boldly, God answers when we pray. Now, dial into this. We need to be very clear and careful here. In our story before us this morning in verse 11, we find Nehemiah very specifically asking God for what? Success. Did you catch it? Success. And by success, he means, I want these walls built up, I want the gates restored, I want Israel protected once again." It's against the odds the Persians are in control, that it's not been built now for 140 years, but Nehemiah says, "I as a cupbearer, might have some influence we'll see that next week and I want success. And you know what we're going to find as we go on in this story, God's going to give them success. God is going to answer with a resounding yes to Nehemiah's prayer here. So the point is, God answers prayer. But I know what some of you're thinking. You're thinking, well, he doesn't always say yes to me. No, he doesn't. But he still answers. See here's what the Bible says. Sometimes when we pray, God answers us and says, no." And there's examples replete in the scriptures. But when David sinned with Bathsheba and there was a baby on the way and God said the baby's not going to make it, David hit his knees and prayed and said, oh God, but please let this baby live. And the baby didn't. God said no. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul the apostle is being plagued by some sort of thorn in the flesh and he says, this isn't fair. I'm your servant. I shouldn't have problems like these. Three times he said, take it away from me. And God said, no. And and there's other examples, but let's not be downers about this, but there's examples in the Bible where God doesn't just say yes, he says no. And then ironically, there's other answers where God says, wait. Isn't that interesting? In Jeremiah chapter 42, Jeremiah is praying before God, and it's interesting in the text, and you can read it later, it says, and 10 days later, the answer came. Isn't that interesting? 10 days later, which teaches us, sometimes God says, Dave, just hold on a bit. I, I, I'll get to this, but I need you to wait. You're in a holding pattern. You're circling the airport before I'm going to let you land. That's what God sometimes says. But don't miss. He does answer prayer. It might be a yes, it might be a no, it might be a wait, but the promise is, is that as we hang in there in prayer, As Jesus taught us, like the widow with the unjust judge, continue to knock, continue to learn how to come to him in prayer. As Nehemiah says, continually pray. God answers. Why? Because he loves you. He's inclined towards you. He moves in your life based on his promises. So, of course, he's going to answer your prayer. It just might not always be yes. But you got yourself an answer. And yet, without prayer, I'm not sure any of this is going to happen. Without prayer, I'm not sure what we can expect from God. But with prayer, especially as a first response, God says, you're going to connect with me. And it's a powerful and profound thing. But we must make prayer a first response. You know, I know most of you know this, but one of the reasons that this is so relevant for us today is because the average Christian today, though I think tries pretty hard, I've watched you guys for, for, for 30 years now and 25 years of being a pastor, and I've watched me. And, and I'm telling you, we don't have a, a really good track record of making prayer first response. Can you own that with me today? I, I hope you can. I did, I did a little exercise with our staff this week to try to flesh this out. It was really kind of fun. I put up on the screen what I'm going to put up on the screen for you guys here and for Cactus and Venue. I asked the staff, are we better at planning and praying or praying and planning? Which is it? In other words, when, when we do things here around the church, do we, do we plan really hard and come up with team and get our ducks in a row and do this and then ask God to bless that or do we hit our knees first and pray and out of that prayer then come up with our plan? And these are the pastors, by the way, that I asked this to. I love how Rick Holman, who's the pastor of our Cactus Campus, said it. He just, he's totally honest. He said, well, both, both. He, he, he said, there's times that I pray and plan, but then there are times that I confess I plan and pray. I think that's probably the most honest answer for probably the best of us. And then I shared with the staff, I said, well, what would it be like if in 2014 our rock solid commitment would be to pray and then plan? Because I got to tell you guys, some of the best plans that I've ever seen come out of church began with prayer. I'm not here just to promote our Compelled by Grace campaign, but as we shared with you during it, what we're doing with our facility and with multi site and with missions, I'm telling you, I was there. It began in prayer because we didn't know what to do as a church. We didn't know what God had for us. And so for two years, the elders prayed. We had knee pads, and we prayed like crazy, and we were not going to stop until we got an answer. And the vision God gave us is where we are now. But with that track record, why would we veer from that and do anything else? So it's why we're meeting as a church here Wednesday night. We don't have an agenda for this prayer. Please know that. I mean, our prayer on Wednesday night, we're going to keep you about 50 minutes, is simply to lay our lives out before God as a church and begin this year with prayer. And then let's see where he leads. Because you see, here's here's what's so cool about that. When we do that, then we know whatever happens is all about God. Amen? And not just us. And this works in your personal life in profound ways as well. I had a couple experiences in December where I was over my head and some of the people helping things that I do around here. And I was reminded of something I've known for 30 years now that somebody shared with me when I first went into ministry. He, he shared with me that, that Jamie, um, you don't have the power to change the composition of a human heart. Only God does. And I gotta tell you, that is such a liberating thing. If you don't live like that, you're, you're, you're gonna be miserable because you know the reality is when it comes to your kid who might be going off the deep end or a marriage that you're struggling with, or a coworker that you can't get along with, or a neighbor you don't like, and you're praying, or you want to see all those things change. The reality is, though we try like crazy, most of us, every one of us, do not have the power to change somebody else's heart. You don't. Only God does. And that was shared with me 30 years ago in ministry, and it's very liberating, but it can also be very frustrating because I roll up my sleeves every week and I'm involved in people's lives, and there's times where I share truth with them, and I, I share what you need to do and what God says, and I, I even try to work through what issues are holding them back, but then I, 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 I realize that I can't do it for them, right? I mean, I, I, I can't change them. As I established years ago, the, the judgment seat of Christ will not be a small group event, All of us are someday going to have to appear before God to give an account for our own lives. And that's the way God has made us. It's part of our DNA and our wills. So I can't change somebody's heart. Only God and them can do that. But you know what I realized once again in December in preparation for our time this year? I realized the greatest gift I can give them is to pray. Because as I pray to God, God is the only one who can change them. And one of the most powerful things, gifts I can give someone is pray. And I'm not trying to weasel out of helping people. You guys know me. I'm involved in people's lives all the time. I will continue to be. I'm just codependent enough to be that way. But the reality is, is that I'm realizing I probably need to pray more and shut up and talk less because the victories that I notice around me are more a result of prayer than anything else. And isn't that the way it should be? I'm right now dealing with my kids. I I love my kids deeply. And I got, you know, my kids are all entering adulthood right now. And, 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 you know, that's a tough thing. And I can't betray any confidence here because that wouldn't be right. My kids asked me when they were about five to stop using them as sermon illustrations because they didn't like that. And my wife affirmed it. So I got to be careful. But let me just say it this way. As all three of my children have entered into adulthood, it has not always been easy. And unhitching their wagon from mom and dad has not been easy. And one of the most frustrating things about me, now I don't say this arrogantly, but, but if they would let me, I have the answers. I can help them. <laughs> and I tell them that. I mean, I do. I say, guys, I'm not trying to be arrogant. There's a lot of things I don't do well, but I know this. And I've been there, and I help a lot of other families, and, and, and yet you won't let me help you, and that's very frustrating. And my wife smiles and says, you're such an idiot. I mean, you know, you don't get that. You don't get that. It's your family. They're not going to listen to you there. So I feel very hamstrung. Have you, can you sense that? So you know what I do? I do what a lot of you do. I just pray. I do. I pray. I love my kids so deeply. I feel like crying. I just pray. And yet in that, God moves. He inclines and he answers. And, and I think that's where all of us are at. Why do we pray first more than anything else? Don't miss us today. It's not complicated. It's just hard because it connects us with God and, and it unleashes his resources in our lives and in the lives of those around us. And, and then very quickly, because Troy mentioned, we want to leave some time at the end today for us to practice what we're talking about here today in Cactus and Venue as well. Let me just share with you how we pray, because this is important. Now, it's not formulaic, but the Scriptures do talk about, now dial into this, a posture that you and I must have before God when we pray. And I don't mean kneeling or standing or folded arms or anything like that, but a heart posture of how we pray in such a way that best connects with Him. And it's contained here clearly in the text of Nehemiah, but affirmed by so many other scriptures. And here's the posture, and that is that when we pray, we must pray with praise, confession, repentance, and then and only then request. In that order, God says that when you approach him in prayer, begin with praise, move into confession, allow your confession to be bathed in repentance, and then present your request before him. And so let me show you very quickly in the text here. Verse 5 is where Nehemiah begins his prayer. Remember in verse 4 where he says, As soon as I heard, I prayed. Now in verse 5 he begins his prayer and he says, And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. That is a fascinating verse, folks. I mean, again, Nehemiah is a doer. He's going to grab a hammer and start building a wall and mobilize all the people. And though he said, the first thing I'm going to do is pray, isn't it interesting that the first thing he does in prayer is not say to God, okay, God, here's the deal. Jerusalem's in trouble. I need you to run interference with the king. I got to get it from here to Jerusalem. I got to mobilize the people and I need your help and all that. He didn't do any of that when he prays. Very first thing he does in prayer, isn't this interesting, is praise God. And see, that's the point. You and I need to begin all of our prayers, even if it's briefly, with just praise of God. Why? Now, don't miss this. Because it lets us center ourselves on who God really is. When we praise him for his goodness and his grace, we're centering ourselves on God, readying ourselves for connection with him. So prayer needs to begin with praise. Secondly, notice a second movement of prayer, and that is that we always need to enter into a time of confession. I do this every day, multiple times throughout the day. In Nehemiah 1, verses 6 and 7, right after he praised, he says, Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open, God, to hear the prayer of your servant and day and night for Israel. And then he says this, Confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you, even as my, I my father's house have sinned, we have acted very corruptly against you, not kept your commandments, statues, and rules that came through Moses. So again, don't miss this, guys. The second movement of prayer for Nehemiah in such a way that connects with God is after praise to then confess. And you're saying, what's the point? See, confession clears the air, doesn't it? I mean, again, go back to our children. If your children say, do something that bothers you or hurts you, you're not going to disown them. I mean, it's not like you say, well, you're not my children anymore, but there is a relational rift between you and your kid or if your spouse or a friend. And when somebody comes and says, I'm sorry, I own that, I messed up, that starts to begin to clear the air, doesn't it? It's no different with God. We have sinned before him. I promise you, if you and I sat down for a cup of coffee and I did an audit of your last 24 hours, If I did an audit of you this morning so far, my guess is I could identify some kind of sin of thought or word or deed or emotion or whatever because we're that fallen. And what confession does is it clears the air with God as we confess our sins before him. I do this multiple times a day. In fact, here's what I really try to do. I try to do it every night before bed because then when I wake up, I love how Jeremiah said it in Lamentations chapter three, your mercies are new every morning. So isn't that awesome? I confess at night, wake up feeling clean. And and, and so the reality is we need to confess our sins before him. Then notice a third movement of this prayer, and that is repentance. Uh, It says in verses 8 through 10, remember the word you commanded your servant Moses, that if we're unfaithful, you'll scatter us. But look at verse 9, but if you return to me and keep my commandments, I will gather you. Isn't that interesting? You see, what Nehemiah did is he said, I confess my sinfulness. But you see, God, we're turning toward you. We resolve not to do this anymore. The Bible calls that repentance, a resolve not to sin anymore. And even though you might still sin, the resolve itself not to sin is a turning from your sin, saying that you need God. It gives teeth and substance to your confession. And God says that's part of connecting with him in prayer. So we praise, we confess, we repent, and isn't it interesting, and I could show you this pattern all throughout the scripture, in Daniel, in the book of Acts, in the epistles, that after we praise, after we confess, after we repent, then we request. So then we're ready for verse 11 of Nehemiah, where he says, now hear the prayer of your servant, and give success to your servant today, and grant me mercy in the sight of the king. Now it's time for request, and now it's time to either get a yes, a no, or a wait, but don't miss the posture of prayer that he has. A posture of prayer that says, I'm going to come before you and praise, and then I'm going to confess, and I'm going to repent. And as my heart connects with you, then I will put my request before you. See, I think we need a church and a group of people to pray more like that than anything else. This is the pattern I use, guys, all the time, every day in my prayers. Driving down the road, I will be seen listening to praise music and praising God or sometimes country music because everybody in Nashville is a Christian. And so sometimes I'll be (laughs) be praising God, you know, by by listening to music and centering my heart on Him. In all seriousness, sometimes I'll just turn the radio off and I'll think of the songs we sung in church because God seems to bring those to mind and I'll just allow my heart to do a heart of praise. And then out of that, some confession, out of that will come requests. It becomes natural, almost like spiritual breathing as we learn to pray this way. So here's what we're going to do. Troy mentioned earlier and maybe Carson and Cody mentioned as well at our other venues that uh, we're going to leave some time now to practice this. We're going to do a very mini concert of prayer for the next 10 minutes as a church. So I'm going to pray right now and then let the venue and Cactus do their own prayer. And then I'm going to lead us in a, in a short time of prayer just to ready us for the week ahead to kind of set in motion what we've been learning here today so that we can start to all do this together and individually. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Nehemiah and for what he teaches us about this all-important first response of prayer. Lord, if I don't miss my guests, there are many of us here today in the Cactus and venue that, that want to have more connection with you. And so you're showing us how. So Lord, as we connect with you this way, God, we may you then incline yourself to us and move and answer and work us toward that second wind, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.